an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So in my, in my response, I wanted to talk about the general issue that has been one of the themes already of the conference is sort of like, what, what, do we, what are the issues around this notion of design? And I want to contrast the classical view of design and the modern view. And Jay's already talked about some of this, the Aristotelian view, the, um, the modern views. I'm going to highlight some of those things and draw out certain conclusions. And I, I actually want to try to explain in some ways some of the exact issues Jay ra raised. For example, he, he raised the question, he says, I don't know why it is that the uh, fine-tuning arguments, the arguments from physics and cosmology, are more popular or less controversial than some of the arguments for design and biology. I'm going to try to actually explain that in my, in my brief presentation here, because I think uh, it's actually pretty, um, pretty straightforward to understand why there's that difference. So let's start with the classical view. And the classical view is, is nicely encapsulated in the famous Fifth Way of St. Thomas, which I think is actually worth looking at uh, and reading. Um, the Fifth Way is taken from the governance of the world. I'm going to pause right there and say when St. Thomas talks about governance, he's not talking about a puppet master, someone who is directly causing, in, uh, without creaturely causes, the activities of the world, but rather providential reign, which involves both fully creaturely causes and providential cause of God's actions. So the governance of the world is the fifth way. We see the things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end, and this is evident from their acting always, or nearly always, in the same way, so as to obtain the best result. Hence it is plain that not fortuitously, but designedly, do they achieve their end. Now whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by someone being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as, arrow, as the arrow is shot to, be, to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. So that's the fifth way. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. The essence of the, of the classical argument is that natural things always are, for the most part, as the formulation goes, will attain their ends unless they're thwarted by some other uh, intervening cause. Now, how can they do that? Why do they do that? That's kind of the crux of the question. How is it that things like bees can dance and communicate with one another, and yet they don't have any rational uh, capabilities, but they communicate through symbol systems? Or something as simple as a proton. Why does a proton always, or for the most part, act in a certain way? And the answer given by the classical conception of nature is they do that uh, because of the, this quasi-intelligent, I'll call it quasi-intelligent behavior, that is things that lack intelligence behave intelligently. That's kind of the essence of the classical notion of, of design. And in short, we can summarize it as follows. The essence of the classical way is the quasi-intelligent behavior of unintelligent things. This is, by the way, a completely universal principle. Everything in nature that is intelligible, that is, that we can understand, acts in an orderly fashion, and therefore, in the classical conception, acts for an end. The argument roughly runs like this. Order in nature, the finality, it comes from mind. Order only comes from mind. What we see when we look at nature is uh, order and finality um, I'm sorry, so w when we find things that are orderly that and, and intelligible, uh, we know that those things are the result of mind. So everything in nature is the result of mind. That's kind of the core, it's a very, very maximalist position. So it, it, from the design perspective, this is design everywhere. That's, that's the classical view. Now, that doesn't mean that every single thing is orderly, and, and at least as we can see it, and there may be lots of contingencies, there may be chance events and so forth, but predominantly what you see when you look at the natural world is this orderliness. 
And therefore, in the classical conception of design, you can think of it as in terms of intrinsic final cause. That is, within each creaturely thing, within each substance or within each kind of existing thing, that thing has a natural tendency towards an end, and it's that quasi-intelligent behavior of the thing which is uh, what is called design in the classical conception. Okay, so that's, you know, in a nutshell, the classical way. Now, Jay properly pointed out that, um, well, one last very important point. So, if you were to state this point in the modern terminology, what you'd say is that it, final cause is simply a way of saying, an old-fashioned way of saying, following a law of nature. Things that follow laws of nature, which includes basically all natural things that are intelligible, are act, acting for an end or proceeding according to a final cause, according to the classical conception. What about the modern way? <clears throat> well, there's, uh, a, as, as, as Jay said, a long story here, and I won't uh, go into even, uh, I won't, I won't, I'll be even more on the surface than he was in terms of the, the uh, um, ex explication of this, of the modern turn and the banishment of final caus causality from a, as a kind of mode of explanation in, in science. But I think what we can say um, for sure is that, um, that what we ended up with at the end of a several hundred year period where first there was this uh, move towards the mechanistic conception of nature, mathematical laws governing or reigning somehow over a uh, sort of flat mechanical universe. Now with God in the picture initially, God is the sort of top level, then the laws of nature understood mathematically, and then matter as this kind of uh, passive uh, stuff in which God reigns through the, the use of, through the means of the laws. That was kind of the new mechanical worldview that came in in the early modern period. Um, and there's a famous quote from this period, which was in, in context perhaps appropriate, but came to sort of as an aphorism sort of summarize this. And this was when uh, Laplace was asked, supposedly by Napoleon, I believe, you know, what about God? I mean, you've got, you've got this whole theory of the solar system, um, and according to Newton's theory, there was the need for some tweaking of the, of the, of the planetary motion, so that there was a necessity for God in that sense. And Laplace said, I have no need of that hypothesis. In other words, I have a mathematically complete model that accounts for all the evidence, and I don't need to you know, come up with some notion of God intervening. Which was, again, in a, in a modest sense, a perfectly reasonable scientific statement. But what it came to represent was a much broader understanding of a what once had been a tripartite understanding, God, law, and uh, mechanical, flat, passive nature, now we simply have laws and, and, and matter. That's it. We've gotten rid of this uh, highest level hypothesis. Um, <clears throat> so that, in a nutshell, again, very small nutshell, is, is the modern turn. And, and with that, you have this strange environment arising in which you study the nature in, with all of its incredibly order, orderly pattern ways, full of you know, replete with uh, structure and mathematically intelligible aspects, um, and yet at the same time, a belief that somehow this can all just happen without any reference to a creator. Um, now, there's a lot of things going on in this period that, that, can, that can, could lead to that. I mean, at the same time, we have the Reformation going on, there's, there's things going on in intellectual history, which, um, you know, if you look at the whole picture, and again, this, you know, we could spend hours and hours on this topic, um, you can begin to understand why there was a kind of retreat from natural, natural theology or into a kind of fideism. That is, pe people who were believers still believed that God was the, the, the author and the cause of all these things. 
But they felt that they, they came to see that as a matter of faith and that reason alone, acting of its own, without uh, reference to revelation, couldn't achieve these, the knowledge of these higher things. <clears throat> so <clears throat> with that as kind of the background, I want to turn to, very briefly, to three modern examples of a kind of resurrection of, of, of an argument, either, either to God, either to creation, or at least to design. Um, one, one very quick qualification here, because you know, in the end I'll, I'll end up disagreeing with my friend Jay on a couple of things, but I think it's really important to point out that there's a world of difference between people who believe that you can know the existence of some intelligence through uh, studying design, or studying nature and seeing the patterns there and seeing design, versus those who believe that it's impossible to arrive at those things from, from the perspective of, of unaided human reason. So in some sense, you know, there's a, I'm on Jay's side, I'm on the side of the intelligent design movement when it comes to the view that through reason we can know the, that, that there is design in nature, um, and I would, of course, go beyond that to say that you can know not just that there is design, but you can know who the designer is in the sense that you can know it's the god of the philosophers. So let's, let's just very briefly do these three case studies. I'm going to uh, use it as example three things. First of all, Big Bang Theory. Secondly, this cosmic fine-tuning. And thirdly, the intelligent design arguments in, that we find in biology. And to try to illustrate my points, I'm going to use a, a, a sort of schematic here. I'm going to start with the a schematic of the kind of steady state universe. Um, Dr. Barr has written eloquently in his book about, you know, what, what did science look like in the 19, at the turn of the 20th century? Uh, the steady state universe, the model was regnant. We seem to have, you know, either have or soon to have a complete account for almost every kind of natural phenomenon. And uh, as he pointed out, at least psychologically, whether this is philosophically sound or not, the, the, the felt experience of people in this time was that that God was on the retreat. There was no reason to have a notion of God in this you know, scientifically tractable, uh, completely um, orderly cosmos that had always existed and had a se seemingly therefore kind of necessity and therefore you know, was, was complete unto itself and scientific explanations therefore were, were completely adequate. So this is kind of a schematic of that, of that steady, steady state universe. Now the first thing that happened um, in, in this story, um, although there's going to be some overlap in, in these, these three parts we'll talk about, was the uh, introduction of the Big Bang Theory. So in the Big Bang Theory now, we get, uh, well, um, so yes, laws above, laws above the cosmos kind of raining down. Again, this, this is, and one of the interesting things here is exactly how do these things control or, or cause or operate on matter. Um, and that's kind of left as an, as an unexplained phenomenon. Um, there, you know, there's, in some way, there's something that's allowing the laws to somehow cause the things below, but that how that happens isn't, isn't really ever explained. And again, as, uh, there's a great article by Nancy Cartwright, who's a philosopher of science, called No God, No Laws, where she challenges her atheist colleagues and says, look, if you, you know, th this whole structure of, of the cosmos came from a time in which there was a three-part structure, God, law, nature. But you've gotten rid of the top layer, yet you still believe that the middle thing causes the lower things. But how is that possible? And she uh, you know, argues, I think, very, very well that you cannot have this, this understanding of causality unless you resurrect the notion of God. So <clears throat> let's get rid of the, how did you like my big bang there? So I've got a little uh, <laughs> cheesy little animation there to, to show that, okay, so we've gotten rid of a steady state universe. We've introduced the notion based on the discoveries that Jay mentioned that if you, you know, roll back the, the, the tape of, of a cosmic clock uh, from an expanding universe, you get to evidence of a of a, an initial condition, a, a, a singularity at the beginning. Um, and again, the, even the word beginning is problematic because there was no time before this. 
Um, but nevertheless, you have this notion of the singularity. So along, along comes this idea, and it did have, you know, clearly had some theistic implications. Many people, you know, it didn't, it didn't help matters from the atheist perspective that it was, you know, the idea came from a Catholic priest, uh, George Lemaitre, who was a, a Belgian physicist. Um, so that was, a, that was an issue, and so there was quite a number of years, many decades, where Big Bang Theory, while you know, increasingly prevalent and accepted as a, as a sort of a standard model, encountered resistance on the ground that it was kind of, a, by implication, sort of creationist, and people didn't like it for that reason. But here's what I think is a really interesting point, is that as the decades went by, atheists kind of got used to it, and they kind of stopped worrying about it. So, um, now, I want to ask, why is that? Why is it that in this model, we're going to stop here for a second, I can be a perfectly satisfied atheist? Now, I may say some crazy things. We heard some crazy quotes from some of the, the physicists yesterday and today about you know, things just popping out of nothing, what have you. But still, the point is that a, you can be a sort of metaphysically satisfied atheist with this model. And I think I, I'm, going to try to, I'm going to postulate an answer for the very same reason that I can get used to the idea that these laws are just there because they have a kind of implicit simplicity. There's the idea that there's probably some grand unified theory that is just there, it's kind of beautiful and simple, and from that derive other subsidiary laws. It's just there, I don't have to explain something that's very, very simple like that. And I think for the very same reason, if you look at the, the temporal perspective and think about Big Bang, the, the non-theists can also eventually become comfortable with this because of its kind of simplicity. That is, the idea that if something's very simple and just sort of is, you don't need to explain it. You can just assume it. So again, I can't prove that, but I, I believe that that's why psychologically and, and, and you know, kind of intellectually, this picture, in the end, is not problematic for the atheist or the agnostic. They, they're, they're comfortable with this. Now, whether they should be is a different question. I would go back to what I said at the beginning, which is, I'd like to hear where these laws come from, for example, or why there's something rather than nothing. But the point is, this is a, a, a situation where people became fairly comfortable. But I want to introduce now this thing that Jay mentioned, and I think it's a very important point, which is um, the question of cosmic fine-tuning. So as the model developed and as people began to think, what would it mean to have a set of initial conditions that gave, gave rise to the Big Bang? <clears throat> what they found was, <clears throat> well, first of all, the, you know, the laws are now kind of more filled in. We have the possibility of a grand unified theory. Uh, we have string theory, arguably, as, as maybe the, the way of making quantum theory and relativity somehow be conjoined or, or derivable from a common set of simple principles. Um, but, but along come the, um, uh, you know, this evolutionary cosmos. So you have this very strong notion of how uh, the cosmos itself is evolving from you know, the Big Bang all the way through uh, time to where we are today. And, and essentially, the, the key, some of the key points are, you know, first of all, the sort of coalescing of what you might call normal matter. We get first generation stars. We need more generations of stars to create heavy elements. Heavy elements um, are then possible to create Earth-like planets. Then it, when you have an Earth-like planet, then you can have life begin um, if spontaneously, according to the standard account. Um, and then you can have evolutionary history, and you can have these sort of interesting events that are uh, challenging for standard evolutionary theory like the Cambrian explosion, and eventually you have human beings as kind of the, the end of this process. Not the in, intended end according to the standard account, but you know, temporally at, at the end. <clears throat> so that's, again, that's kind of this, the model that, that we have and that both atheists are comfortable with and that theists you know, accept and have a different interpretation of. But one of the, the next challenge, so after Big Bang, which I think has been sort of accounted for in terms of it's been accommodated into uh, an atheist 
uh, worldview, and it's of course accepted by theists as well. The next thing that came along, uh, overlapping somewhat, was this idea of uh, a cosmic fine-tuning. So in the cosmic fine-tuning uh, argument, what you see is you have a whole set of seemingly arbitrary laws and constants which make up the, um, <clears throat> the initial conditions. And the key thing I want to emphasize here is that they seem arbitrary. There's a very large number of them. They involve a bunch of numbers and, and, and relations between numbers that are, that are not derivable. They have no, there's nothing simple about them. You can't derive them from some, uh, from some meta theory. And this became very troubling and very problematic for the, the uh, sort of anti-theist position, the atheist position. Because it does seem like a, a very unlikely coincidence that these things could all happen together. However, there's, this is the key point. Um, the reason I believe that this view, as opposed to uh, ID and biology, which I'll get to in a second, is, so, um, is much more acceptable for many theists to make as a design argument is that once the universe gets going, then the causality of this, this lower bar, this naturally evolving cosmos, there's no, there's no intervention there. There's no agency, there's nothing. So the agency or the design, if you will, is all front-loaded into the evolving cosmos. And that, I think, it makes many scientists much more comfortable with the design argument uh, than the alternative. The alternative in biology is essentially to posit these kind of uh, activities of an intelligent agent. So I'm going I'm to describe these or show these as like little breaks in natural causality. So, for example, life begins on Earth. Now, as was said yesterday, there's very, the naturalistic accounts of this phenomenon are very, very weak. So many people believe that this is a, an example of something where science may never actually discover any naturalistic account. And so that is a kind of break in this cosmic web of, of causality. Um, but beyond that, again, they become more controversial. So things like evolutionary, you know, large-scale increases in, of, in information in the Cambrian explosion, as it's often expressed, um, that becomes sort of problematic for people because, again, it's viewed as a sort of uh, break in this, in this cosmic chain of, of causality. And even many theists are uncomfortable with the idea that God is somehow, or some uh, cosmic agent is somehow doing something in, in, this, in this story. So that, go, that, that goes on, these kind of interventions. I, I'll, I'll close with, with essentially a couple of thoughts. Um, <clears throat> first of all, um, if I were to tell this story from a philosophical point of view, I would, I would change this, this picture uh, pretty, uh, pretty consistently. What I would do is I would say, First of all, that, that um, the evolutionary story is a, is a story not just across time, but also across form. That is, there's a rising, a kind of ascent of form over time, um, which is not the same as simply laws reigning from above. I would agree with, uh, with um, Professor Sitch from yesterday, where he pointed out that the mathematical descriptions we have of nature are models of nature, but not themselves the sort of fundamentally real, real things about nature. Um, and so you end up with a, a kind of different view. And, and again, if you get, I think if you get the philosophy of nature right, which is essentially, essentially what we're talking about, you can get rid of things like, um, you know, whether there's uh, breaks in this causality or not is not really that important. I mean, it's interesting. It's an empirically interesting question, but it doesn't matter in terms of the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, rightness of your understanding of the natural world. Um, you can even get rid of things like, like Big Bang. If that goes away, it turns out, that, you know, we go back to a steady state model. That's not really a problem if you, again, if you can get your, your um, understanding of nature to be properly aligned with a, with a kind of good philosophical background. So, um, and so in closing, I'm going to go through the, um, you know, the, the, the key points here is, first of all, 
th this Thomistic perspective or the natural philosophy perspective is sort of maximal design. Finality and intelligibility everywhere. So it's sort of design everywhere, if you will. And the second thing is that you can't really prove this design from within the scientific framework precisely because uh, the science is predicated on the intelligibility and the order of nature. And so for science to even get off the ground, you have to have an orderly cosmos. So thank you very much. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.